Well, good morning, Hellos Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here with our faith family. And it's my joy to lead us through our study of the scriptures today. And, but before we jump into Acts chapter 21, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago, let me voice a prayer over us as we do so. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our eyes to see beauty in its pages? Would you open our hearts to receive your word and give us grace to respond with faith and trust to all that you would have us here today in Jesus' name? Amen. One day Jesus compared finding life in his kingdom with a man who found a treasure buried in a field. Upon finding this treasure, he then went in joy and he sold everything that he had. He sold his house, he sold his car, he sold his stocks and he took all of his assets, he sold all of his assets and he took the proceeds and he went and he bought this piece of land. Now, to the casual observer who is looking in on this man's story, they might think he's gone crazy. He's making risky investments. For all they see is an arid land, but, but in the unseen spaces, there rested a treasure that would transform this man's life forever. Now, as we think today about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we think about the decision we've made to to be his disciple, to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we remember that the decision to follow Jesus and to become a disciple of Christ isn't a decision to be taken lightly. No, we consider Jesus' instructions elsewhere in the gospel when he tells us to count the cost, that we are to consider the cost of what it means to follow him. And, And so we want to do that. We want to remind ourselves of the cost of discipleship as we follow Jesus through this world. But as we consider the cost and we, we think about those dynamics, let's not just count the cost of what we give up to follow Jesus. Let's consider the cost of what we gain as we follow Jesus. When we put our faith in Christ, there we find the treasure of eternal life. There we find the treasure of indestructible joy. There we find the treasure of forgiveness and the treasure of purpose. There we find the treasure of our true selves being made new. When we put our faith in Christ and we become his disciples, we, we find, we gain the treasures that our, heart has been, our hearts have been searching for in all the insufficient spaces of this world. So we want to consider the cost of following Jesus today, but we want to consider the cost not so much of what we give up to do so, but what we gain as we do so. Now the Apostle Paul was a man who found this treasure. He was told when he was considering following Jesus and becoming a Christian, when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he was told that that as he followed Jesus, that he would suffer. Yet he saw through the arid fields of this desert life and drew the conclusion, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I may follow Jesus to my grave, and if that's the case, when I am buried in this world, I am going to find, I'm going to be united in a deeper sense to my heart's truest treasure. And so Paul counted the cost and he discovered that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we see this approach to life. We see this consideration that he made 
in Acts chapter 21 because the passage that was read for us a moment ago presses this point forward. In this passage, we discover a collision of wills. Paul wills to go to Jerusalem, which he understands to be the Lord's will for his life. Paul just shared in the previous chapter with the Ephesian elders, he made the statement, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now his course would lead through Jerusalem, but but those who loved Paul, those who cared for Paul, did not want him to go to that city. They didn't want to lose him. Everyone knew that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die. And so the question for us to think about this morning is, what do we do? What do we do when God's will for our lives clashes with what others want for our lives? What do we do when God's will for our lives clashes with what other people want for our lives, specifically those who love us most? What do we do when the course God puts before us leads away from valuable relationships and towards various forms of difficulties and struggles and sufferings? Well, once again, we, in those moments, we must count the cost of following Jesus. But let's not just count the cost of what we give up in those moments. Let's consider the cost of what we gain as we as we. Walk in obedience to Jesus. You see, today's passage continues one of the most emotional stretches of Scripture in all the book of Acts. The stretch starts back in verse 17 of the previous chapter when Paul met with the Ephesian elders and he's saying goodbye, which wasn't an easy thing for him to do. So that when you get to verse 1 of chapter 21, Luke writes, after we tore ourselves away from them, that it was an emotional moment, an emotional departure. Paul had to tear himself away from those who loved him and those that he sincerely loved as well. It reminds me when I was a kid, my parents would drop me off at my grandparents to spend a week or so with them. And, and although I loved my grandparents, I, I was always initially homesick. And so when my parents would drop me off, I would just cling to them. And I would have to be torn off of them if I was going to stay where I was supposed to be. And and that's kind of the image I have here, this, this uneasy moment of Paul saying goodbye to friends that he loved dearly. And after tearing himself away from the Ephesian elders, Paul, Luke, and those who are traveling with him, they make a series of visits They visit a series of places en route to the city of Jerusalem. And so a lot of this passage contains kind of a travelogue summary of kind of the last stretch of Paul's third missionary journey in the book of Acts. And and as you read through this passage, it'd be easy for us to be overwhelmed by all the names and the places. But what I want you to consider is that nestled within all the place names and the locations that Paul visits, there there are these details peppered in. Details that emphasize the good things, the good things Paul would have to give up in order to follow his course to Jerusalem. You see, in every place he stopped, he saw friends of his. Every place he stopped, he met with people who loved and cared for him, people who benefited from his life and his ministry. 
people who didn't want their interactions to end in this life. And you look at verse, I believe, four. It says that through the Spirit, the disciples in a place called Tyre, they told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the city. You know, one of the hardest aspects of following Jesus is doing so when our, the course laid before us leads us away from people that we love, that leads us away from valuable friendships and relationships. When Kim and I moved to Seattle in 2011 to begin the process of, of planting this church, we had to say goodbye to lots of people. We had to say goodbye to family and friends who cared deeply for us. We were committing to raise our kids far removed from the immediate support of grandparents and aunts and uncles and members of our church at that time. It, it wasn't an easy decision for us to make. It wasn't an easy decision, especially if we focused on all the things that we were giving up, but when we turned our attention to what we would gain, when we turned our attention to the experience of walking in obedience to Jesus, that's, that's when we found much delight in the decision. That's when we found the resolve to move forward, even though it was hard to say goodbye. I remember one conversation we had with some friends who we, we shared with them that Kim was pregnant with Delaney. And they assumed that because Kim was pregnant, we would change our plans and we would no longer move to Seattle. They were surprised to hear that we didn't even give that a thought. We didn't even consider changing our plans when Kim turned up pregnant. We knew what Jesus was calling us to do and and they pressed us on the issue. They asked us if it was wise. They, they questioned whether or not we understood God's will. And, and in that moment, I remember thinking, I remember thinking how that conversation uncovered a major assumption that is far too common, that's far too commonly shared by Christians concerning the Lord's will. You see, many Christians assume that the course Jesus leads his followers on will always be smooth, that it will be free from suffering and hardships, that the course Jesus leads us to walk upon will always be easy. Our perception is that God's will is all about upward mobility, that if we are following Jesus, he's going to always lead us to bigger and better places. He's going to lead us to do bigger and better things. And over time, he's just going to lead us into a more comfortable and cozy rhythm of life that the course of Christ is a steady incline. It is upward mobility. But what I want you to think about today, church, what I want you to understand today is that the Lord's will for our lives is not so much about upward mobility as it is about outward mobility it's not so much about upward mobility as it is outward mobility it's the lord's will to draw you and i out of ourselves and towards the needs of others this was the situation in paul's life remember one of the reasons he wanted to go to jerusalem is because he wanted to deliver this offering to the hurting christians in that city 
And Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, he was uniquely equipped to represent those churches and to promote unity between God's global church, churches that were predominantly Jewish and churches that were predominantly Gentile. Paul was uniquely qualified to bridge those worlds together. And so one of the reasons Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem is because he personally wanted to deliver the gifts that the church there needed, the gifts that were generously provided by Gentile churches all throughout the known world. You see, the Lord's will for our lives concerns outward mobility. That is, that's what he declared earlier in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Talking to the disciples, Jesus said, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Luke records Jesus' words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's outward mobility. And as we move outward and go towards people in need, sometimes, sometimes we have to leave certain things behind. Sometimes we will have to leave some very good gifts that God has graced our lives with because the Lord's will is about outward mobility. And perhaps one of the best gifts God graces us with in this life is the gift of what's called gospel friendships. You know, a friendship is birthed that moment two people look at each other and they say, what, you too? And a commonality is shared, whether it be a shared experience or a shared interest, this commonality draws two people together and a friendship is formed, a friendship is birthed. Well, gospel friendships are forged by a commonality that that cuts across every earthly border and cuts across every earthly boundary. That together we share Jesus. That as followers of Christ, we share the same Savior. And Jesus has this uncanny ability of bringing different people together and forming unlikely friendships between them. Jesus makes friends between the young and the old. Jesus makes friends between the rich and the poor. Jesus makes friends between businessmen and artists. Jesus makes friends between cougars and huskies, believe it or not. These friendships that that cut across every border and every boundary of this world, Jesus transcends all of that. And the world takes notice when people who share nothing in common but Jesus, when they live and love and be together as friends. Well, there's an emphasis on gospel friendships in this passage. There are at least four ways in which gospel friendship is experienced, and I'll just point them out fairly quickly. One way is through the practice of hospitality. In at least four places, Paul stays in the home of other disciples. You see this entire in verse 4, in Ptolemaeus in verse 7, Caesarea verse 8. Then if you drop all the way down to verse 16, in the home of Manasseh of Cyprus at Jerusalem, they, they stay there as well in verse 16. You see, disciples opened their homes 
to the apostle and his traveling companions. They welcomed them into their space. You see, the early Christians did not say, my home is my refuge, which is the philosophy of so many people today. No, they viewed their homes as a gift from God. And because the Lord's will concerns outward mobility, they leveraged their homes to serve and to bless others. They opened up and let people in. They opened up and blessed people as they were able you know, my family, my family of five have been waiting, <laughs> uh, have been without a home for almost a year now. And over the course of this year, last year, we've experienced remarkable friendship through the practice of hospitality. So many of you have cared for us, and as we prepare to, to move into our house next week, Lord willing, I just want to thank Drew and Heather Daniels, Colin and Lauren McMillan. I want to thank Matt and Marianne Hudson. I want to thank my mother-in-law, all of you who opened your homes to us and gave us a place to stay and to be over the past several months. We cherish the friendships that we have with you and we are grateful to God for you. We want to thank all of you who've been praying for us, all of us, all of you who've been supporting and encouraging us in a myriad of ways during this strange stretch of life. You know, we look forward to moving into our house and being able to, to open it up and to welcome as many of you as possible into our home. And, and Lord willing, that'll happen sooner than later, right? Well, we welcome people into our lives. We welcome people into our homes. We engage in the practice of hospitality because we serve a Savior who welcomed us into his life. We serve a Savior who one day will welcome us into his home. But not only do you see the practice of hospitality in this moment, a second way the gospel friendship is experienced is through shared affections. There's so much physical affections being demonstrated in this passage. If you look up at verse 37 of the previous chapter, uh, the Ephesian elders embrace Paul and they kiss him. Then you look at verse 1 again. They had to tear themselves away from them. It was clear that these people loved each other. It was clear that they loved each other deeply as brothers and sisters. You know, sharing affections can take a physical form. It can take the form of a handshake or a pat on the back. It can take the form of a hug. I like to grab Asher, my son's head, and just shake it as a way of just showing my affections to him and my love for him. But sharing affections doesn't have to be limited to physical expressions. I know that freaks some of you out. I know many of you who would not feel very loved if, if I hugged you or if someone else hugged you or something along those lines. But understand that sharing affections can take a verbal form as well. A verbal form where we just let people know how much they mean to us. We let people know what we think of them in loving, God-honoring, encouraging ways. We, we drop handwritten notes in their direction. We make phone calls. We engage in intentional conversations so that we can experience friendship by sharing our affections for people with people. But then a third way gospel friendship is experienced in this passage is through the, the sharing of spiritual practices. If you look at the passage, the, the whole church entire followed Paul out of the city. And once they arrived outside the city, they knelt down and they prayed together. 
You know, gospel friendships are always deepened through sharing spiritual experiences and spiritual practices together, and which is why we want to pray together, which is why we sing together. It's why we study the scriptures together. It's why we commune together at the table. Such spiritual practices fortify our friendship with each other and, and deep and stoke the flames of our affections for one another. You know, on a side note, one of the, one of the surest ways to perhaps resolve a conflict in one of your gospel friendships is to take time to pray together is to take your eyes off yourselves and fix them back on the Savior and talk to Him together at the same time. And one of the surest ways to grow in your love for a gospel friend is to take time and to pray for them by name as we share spiritual practices together. But then a fourth way gospel friendship is experienced is through the sharing of our decision-making process is when we share decision-making process, the, the, <laughs> the decision-making process together. You know, following the Lord's will is not a private affair. Following the Lord's will is not something we do by ourselves for ourselves. No, God's will moves in an outward direction, and as it moves in that direction, at times it will include other people into the conversation, into the dialogue to help us sense and discern what the Lord is telling us to do. And so Paul did not keep what he understood to be the Lord's will to himself. He did not keep it secret. In fact, other people began to weigh in on his decision as he interacted with them. And gospel friends should be allowed to counsel us as we seek Jesus' direction. Now, their counsel may not always be right. Their counsel may not always be listened to or acted upon. In this case, Paul's gospel friends had good intentions, but it seems they were counseling him away from what Jesus was actually telling him to do. And so that brings us back to the question. That brings us back to the question, what do we do when God's will for our lives clashes with what others want for our lives? Specifically those who love us most, specifically our gospel friends. Well, let's look again at what happens in the story, in verse 4, we're told that gospel friends in the city of Tyre, through the Spirit, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So then Paul, but Paul eventually leaves that city and he goes to Caesarea. And there he enters the house of Philip the Evangelist. And we're told that Philip was a man who had four unmarried virgin daughters who were gifted in prophecy. That they often spoke timely, truthful, and transformative words to people that they ministered to and and just on a side note, uh, for those history nerds among us, ancient sources of church history tell us that at least three of these girls lived in their, into their 90s. And early church historians, Popius and Eusebius, they, they drew upon uh, these girls' stories to help us understand what life was like during the apostolic era and what life and ministry was like af immediately after the apostolic era. Era. It's a fascinating dynamic. These, these girls played an important role. But then we're told about another prophet, a man by the name of Agabus. And Agabus came down from Judea. And when he arrived in the room and he began to interact with Paul, he did what so many prophets of old used to do. 
He delivered a prophetic word not only through what he said, but through a dramatic demonstration. Very similar to what Isaiah did in the Old Testament when he stripped down naked and he walked barefoot through the city streets to demonstrate to people what the Lord would soon do to Israel's enemies, that God is going to strip them down. He was going to humiliate them. He was going to put them to shame. It's very similar to what Ezekiel did when he built a replica of the city of Jerusalem that that, uh, was destroyed to demonstrate what God's judgment would soon do when it fell upon the city due to the people's infidelity and their lack of trust in the Lord. Well, here Agabus is doing a very similar thing. He's delivering a word of warning to the Apostle Paul and to everyone who's in attendance, and he's doing it through a dramatic demonstration. Notice what he does. He takes Paul's belt and he ties it around his own wrist and his own feet, and then he makes this statement. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, this prophetic word unsettled everybody in the room, including Luke. (laughs) Including Luke. When, When he heard this word, he shares that he and his companions then pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, I love this about the Bible. To Luke's credit, He records his own misgivings in this moment. He records uh, something that he might have been tempted to hide or be ashamed of as being one of the voices that tried to talk Paul out of following Jesus to Jerusalem. I love this about the Bible, but it, it includes the weaknesses and the flaws of its human authors within its pages. No one in the Bible is perfect except Jesus. Just like no one in life is perfect but Jesus. You look at verse 13. Then Paul replied, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we, that is Luke and everyone else, said, said we, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Everyone decided in that moment to trust that the Lord's will would be done. So what do we do when there is a clash of wills? What do we do when there is a clash of wills between what we believe Jesus is leading us to do and and what others may want for our lives or from our lives, including those who love and care for us most? Well, we need to recognize the, the nature of the prophetic word in this passage. You see, Paul's friends interpreted what was said as a prohibition. They thought that the warning was designed to keep Paul from going to the city, saying, well, if you go there, you're going to suffer. Surely that can't be the Lord's will. But if you're paying attention to the passage, what what Agabus shared wasn't a prohibition. He wasn't delivering a word designed to keep Paul from Jerusalem. What he was giving was a prediction. He was predicting what would happen to Paul. He wasn't telling Paul not to go to that city. You see, Paul knew that the Lord's will moves in an outward direction. And as we move outward towards the needs of others, there are times when suffering will be drawn upon in those purposes and in those moments. And so for him, it meant 
making the hard choice of following Jesus to Jerusalem, that this predictive, prophetic word would enable Paul to go to the city with confidence, with confidence that he was doing the Lord's will. I mean, had he not received this word and he went to Jerusalem and then would be bound and arrested, can you imagine the thought process he might have had? Perhaps he would then wonder, or where did I go wrong? Or what did I do wrong? Man, I should have never come to the city. And all now that I'm here, all these bad things are happening and are unfolding in my life. It would have caused Paul to second guess God's goodness. It would cause Paul to second guess his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's promptings and compulsions in his life. If, had he not received this predictive word, he may have entered the city of Jerusalem and then looked back on all that he had given up with regret. He would have looked back on all that he had given up with a sense of frustration and shame. Perhaps he would have even grown bitter with the Lord. But because he received this word, he was able to go to Jerusalem with confidence. He was able to step into the city with the assurance that the Lord was with him and that the Lord was for him and that though he may suffer there, the Lord would not abandon him when that suffering came. He responds in this moment the same way Jesus would respond in the Gospels. The parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem are astounding there's a pivotal point in Luke's gospel where Jesus resolves to go to Jerusalem too. And he tells his disciples in that moment, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third Day, But then Luke points out the disciples understood none of these things. They did not understand what Jesus was saying. And later Peter would try to persuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem. Very much like Luke and everyone tried to persuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. And so Peter took Jesus aside and he said, Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But then Jesus would soon step into the Garden of Gethsemane and he would pray a prayer very similar to the resolve of the church in Acts chapter 21. He would pray a prayer resolving that the Lord's will would be done. So what do we do when there is a clash of wills? What do we do in moments like these? Well, I'll give you a few pointers. One, we, we should hold all of God's good gifts loosely. We should hold all of God's good gifts loosely. Gospel friendships are to be cherished. Gospel friendships are to be cultivated through the practice of hospitality, through the sharing of affections, through the sharing of spiritual practices. Gospel partnerships should be cultivated and nurtured and strengthened. Gospel partnerships should be cultivated by by sharing our decision-making processes with each other as we talk through how the Lord may be leading us in particular ways and in particular directions to do particular things. Those conversations should happen together. So gospel friendships should be cherished. They should be cultivated. But 
they must not be clung to so tightly that they prevent us from carrying out the Lord's will of outward mobility. We hold them loosely. We do not cling to them tightly. In fact, anything that might hinder us from following the Lord's will of outward mobility, leading us to the needs of those around us, those things should be held with a very, very loose grip, loose grip, including incredible gifts that God graces our lives with in this world. But then secondly, we should recognize that suffering often serves the Lord's will that the Lord uses suffering to fulfill his purposes. He uses suffering to draw us out of ourselves. He uses suffering to get us connected with those in need around us. I mean, you just think about the Great Commission. The gospel will never get to the nations apart from disciples being willing to suffer. The gospel will never reach the ends of the earth unless disciples are willing to do hard things and to discern that the Lord's will doesn't lead us in upward directions, but outward directions. And as we move outward, we may find ourselves suffering, and at times, it may even cost us our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we choose suffering or that The path of suffering is always the right path for us to take, but it does mean that in any and every circumstance, we choose the Lord's will. And at times, the Lord's will involves suffering. The Lord's will is not exempt from suffering. It often, in fact, suffering often serves the Lord's will and purposes for our lives, for his church, and the Great Commission will not be fulfilled apart from it. And then third and finally, most importantly, we must, in, when there is a clash of wills, we must fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus. We must fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus. We focus not so much on what we give up in the course of following him. We consider all that is to be gained. We consider Jesus who looked to the joy that was set before him and the joy that was set before him enabled him to endure the cross, despising its shame and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And Paul also looked to the joy that was set before him, the joy of honoring Jesus, the joy of crossing the finish line, the joy of finishing his course, the joy of being faithful to Jesus both in life and then belong to him, be with him, Unite with him in death. And so we fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus and we trust that the Lord's will will be done. We love our friends. We love our families. We love our gospel friendships. We are grateful to God for them. But ultimately, we love the Savior more. Ultimately, we love Jesus more. And when there is a clash of wills, we resolve in every instance to do what the Savior is telling us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider the cost of discipleship in every moment of every day 
Help us not to grow infatuated with what we give up to follow the Savior. Help us to be infatuated with the Savior in all that we gain in Him, indestructible joy, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, purpose, passion, hope, love, joy, peace, all the treasures that come from you and your kingdom. God, would you give us grace to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus and to follow your will in every moment of every day. God, move us outward in ways that would glorify you. Move us outward in ways that would be a blessing to the people around us for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.